0: The sermon text this morning is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, if you could move past all the turkey you've consumed and the many naps you've taken, or the amount of cranberry sauce you've enjoyed, which has been perplexing to me why we only have cranberry sauce around Thanksgiving time instead of year-round, because I think cranberry sauce is worthy of being eaten year-round. But if you could think about your week, what is the content of your prayers consisted of this week? What have you been praying for? As you think about how you've prayed this week, or even over the past month, what do you find yourself consistently drawn to? What is it that burdens you that you keep praying for it over and over again? Maybe for you personally, or for another believer in this church. Today we're looking at a, a prayer that Paul puts before us in Colossians that I would argue is, is a model prayer. It's a prayer that we should be using regularly and consistently for the lives of one another as, as members of Christ's covenant church. Um, My goal today is not to provide another um, way of praying so you can add this to already a list of how you should be praying. For As Tom quoted the Puritan a few weeks ago, prayer is hard. Um, The Puritan said that he would rather sometimes die than pray. Sounds harsh, but we can feel that. And so For many of us, we're thinking, man, Monday I want to pray like David. Tuesday I'm going to pray like Solomon did with the temple. Wednesday I'm going to pray like Jesus. And Thursday I'm going to do this. And it can feel just so overwhelming. And my goal for today is that you see in this prayer is a model for how we should consistently be praying for one another. It should be what we find ourselves going back to as a way to pray for one another. And if this is not in our regular habit of the way we pray for one another... I would hope that after we look at the importance of it, you will see this must be a way I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll move through this passage in three, three waves. The first one will be, we'll see that there's a prayer for knowledge. So we pray for knowledge. And the second one, we'll see that knowledge is practical. And then the third one will be knowledge leads to thankfulness. Knowledge leads to thankfulness. So the first part... Paul says, And so from the day we heard, in verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. From the day we heard. Heard of what? Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to a group of believers that he's never met face to face. He's writing to... Um, in response to news he's heard from a fellow uh, co-worker in the gospel, Epaphras, has just come back to say he's just heard of all the faith and the love um, that the folks in Colossae have of the gospel and how it's spreading throughout the world. And Paul is rejoicing and he's excited about this news he's heard that they have faith in the gospel. And Paul's also writing to remind them that they're facing a lot of pressure from false teachers, pressure to adopt maybe pagan philosophies, Pressure to go back to Judaism, to go back to keeping the law, to finding your righteousness in yourself instead of in Christ. They're facing maybe syncretism, to take a little bit of all the religions around them and kind of morph it into one. They are under immense pressure that they're facing. And Paul is writing this letter to remind them who Christ is. And Paul says... Since the day he's heard, he's not ceased to pray for them. Now, Paul isn't saying that he is always, always praying. Um, Even when he's sleeping, he's praying. That'd be a whole other level. He even tells the believers in Thessalonians that, uh, I pray for you continually. And so Paul's telling the believers in Thessalonica that he's praying for him continually. He's telling the folks in Colossae, is Paul lying? Is he just being a bit of an exaggerator? What's he doing? I think the text makes us believe, leans in, that Paul, whenever he goes to the Lord in prayer, he's thinking about the churches and the believers in the church. And that also, Paul is always living before the presence of God. He always has a disposition, a reflex of prayer. And so from the day he's heard of this good news, he's not ceased To pray for them. Now, before we move to this next part of what he asked for, you can imagine when you're thinking about your prayers, what would be all the lists that you were thinking about of all the things you would want God to answer? I mean, and particularly if you're one of the recipients here of the letter in Colossians. I mean, you have Paul who's about to pray for you. Paul's not just a regular old Joe. He's an apostle, Paul. He's an apostle who at one point when someone was bitten by a poisonous snake, they just touched his handkerchief and he was healed. He has some, a little extra stuff to him as they would have heard back then. And so they were hoping and praying that maybe if I gave Paul some of these extra requests that he would answer them. Maybe there, within that church is a litany of requests of maybe a marriage is about to go south. Maybe there's a family that's struggling to get food on the table. Maybe there's a a guy who has lost his job because he's taken up the Christian faith and he can no longer go back in the synagogue and he's being shunned in the society. I'm sure there is lists upon list of prayer requests that could have been brought before Paul and that he could have prayed for in this letter. But instead, Paul moves to pray for something that I think seems sometimes a bit foreign to us. He says in verse 9, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul's request, Paul's request for these believers is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's the request? When we hear it, it can strike us as a bit, "Ah, well, I don't know, that seems kind of, I mean... Just the knowledge of His will? What is even God's will? Like For us in the church, and I went to a Christian college, God's will was used in a lot of ways that are outside of the realm of Scripture. For instance, um, I I work right now at a a Christian institution called Southeastern, and I know of and have heard of folks who have went up to girls, um, a guy going up to a girl who is definitely above him, that he has no chance of ever dating her, and he says to her, it's God's will that I date you. We've heard that before, right? Or maybe you've been a recipient of that, and to which I'm sorry. But God's will is kind of this mysterious, we don't know where to put it because, you know, we get sometimes so caught up in do I need to choose this college or this college? Do I need to jump from this job to this job? Should we move to this neighborhood or this neighborhood? Should I marry this person? I mean, is it God's will that I marry them? Because if I don't marry them, do I mess up the whole chain reaction and it just goes completely blown up because if that person marries who I was supposed to marry, then you can see the ripple effect. And God's will becomes, sometimes trying to discover it, a binding uh basically force put upon us that can leave us paralyzed that we don't know what to do. So Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Kevin DeYoung wrote a great book on how to... Think About God's Will Rightly from Scripture. It's a short book. Uh, He wrote it for college students, folks about to go into college thinking about majors. But I would argue that this book is for anybody in any stage of life trying to make decisions about what is God's will. And so this is the title of his book that I think you will find enjoyable. It says, Just Do Something. A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. How to find God's will without going into all of sometimes these wild ways that folks can find God's will. Kevin DeYoung even tells a story of a good friend who was dating a girl and they wanted to go out on another date and This friend said, I would like to take you out again. And she responded to him by saying, No, I I can't take you out. We can't go out again. And he said, Why? And she said, The Holy Spirit told me no. And his friend was crushed because his friend has not only been rejected by this girl, but she's also been rejected by the Holy Spirit. And so he didn't know where to go with that. And so Kevin DeYoung, as we've talked about with his title and his book, provides for us, I think, a healthy way to think about God's will. God has a He has one will, but we divide it up in knowing that He has a hidden will and He has a revealed will. What is God's hidden will? Well, before the foundation of the world, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit came together and they formulated the plan for all of creation. They know every detail that will happen in all of human history. You and I, we have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. We can't predict what world event's going to happen. We can't predict what type of phone call we're going to get. Many of us don't even have any idea what we're going to eat tomorrow. It's, we don't know. It's a hidden thing, but God already knows it. But then there's a revealed will, and praise God that he has made himself known to us. He could have left us in our sin, but he's made himself known to us in his word. And he's perfectly revealed his character, his miraculous acts, and what he demands of us as his creatures and his creation, which is how to live and glorify him. We have it revealed perfectly in his word. Matter of fact, Kevin DeYoung says, even in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that's the will of God. And in case you're thinking, well, are you just creating these categories of hidden and revealed? It even says in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So to erase some of the mystery for you, what is the will of God for your life? That you would be holy For the Lord your God is holy. That in whatever you do, in word, deed, or thought, that you would give glory to God. So if you go to this college or this other college, how do you know that you're in the will of God? When you go there, be holy. When you go there, seek his glory. When you're choosing between jobs, how do you know which one's right? Well, Whichever one you go to, when you go to it, seek his glory. Seek to live for him and to be holy. And if you're doing those things you can guarantee you're in the will of God. So I appreciate the mystery taken out of that. Back to Paul's prayer. He asked that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He also says later in Colossians chapter 2 that in Christ is hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, to know God's will... And to know it with spiritual wisdom and understanding, inevitably, is to know the person of Christ. So Paul's prayer is not to answer all of these requests that they could have had of physical circumstances that certainly needed to be addressed, but his prayer is that they would know God, that they would know Christ Jesus, that they would know His will, that they would have a relationship with Him and grow in that. If I were to ask you, how would you define eternal life? Doesn't seem like that hard of a question, right? I mean, kind of self-explanatory. Eternal, forever, life. So you live forever. I think many of us, that's the, what's presented to the churches in large, large scale in America is that that's what Christianity is all about is just getting eternal life just to get out of hell, get your get out of hell free card. But Jesus tells us quite clearly in John 17 what is eternal life when he's praying to God. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says it. What's eternal life? It's to know God, and it's to know Jesus Christ. When I am knowing him, when I'm being filled with the knowledge of him, I'm already foretasting eternal life. I am experiencing what I was made to have, which is relationship with God. So Paul, in this prayer, He doesn't ask for all of these physical things to be changed. Of course he could have asked for the government to change. Of course he could have asked for the gentleman to get a job. Of course he could have asked for more money to come in, for food to be on the tables. Those things are important. But he asked for the utmost importance, that they would be filled with the knowledge of who God is. Now, for many of us, when we hear that prayer, it feels as if something's lacking. It's like, well... That's good and all, but does that mean we're just supposed to quit our jobs? We go live as monks? We just think about God, stay in the high towers? We don't think about anything in life? I mean, it seems a bit impractical. Like, life was still going. Just like when we leave here, Monday will still happen. Was it an impractical prayer that Paul offered up? I would argue no. And what's so beautiful is the scripture leads right into it. So, Paul has a prayer for knowledge. And the second point, verses 10-11... through his knowledge is practical. See what it leads to. So you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And in verse 10, this is the result. This is what happens if we pray for that. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When, I, when Paul prays for these believers to be filled with the knowledge of God, it's very practical it leads to them walking in a manner that is fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit. Often in Christianity, we can either be one of two extremes. We can either be all knowledge and never engage with life. We can just stay in our ivory tower. We can wrestle with some of the theological debates and some of the philosophies behind it. But if we were to look at our track record, when's the last time we shared the gospel with our neighbor? When's the last time we engaged in caring for the poor? But then on the other extreme is you can have those who are very much wanting a practical religion buy into a social gospel where they think they're saved by doing good works and they're overzealous and they have a few scripture verses they have memorized and they go and they try to share the gospel with everyone. We want to encourage that. But the moment they run into someone who has ever thought about things deeply or in in a philosophy classroom in college, it all falls apart. Because they were all practical, but they had no knowledge. Or either someone can be filled with all knowledge and not be practical. We see here in Scripture that both are wed perfectly together. God asked, Paul asks God to fill them with knowledge, so that with the result, they would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now what's it mean to Walk. It's kind of a foreign thing sometimes for us to say in our daily language. I don't think any of us use, are you walking well with your life right now? None of us use that language. If you do, that's totally fine. I won't judge you. But what it means to walk in the the Hebrew Old Testament was this idea of, living out life, living well. There was almost this imagery even in the Proverbs of, two, of a man walking down a road as his path of life. To walk is your manner of life. It's the way you conduct yourself. And so Paul is arguing you need to be filled with the knowledge so you can walk down the right path to bear fruit. Now, fruit, I would argue, is also sometimes one of those words that we can use, and it works well in the church setting, but the moment we're with a friend that's an unbeliever, perhaps a co-worker, and we say, are you bearing fruit in your life? They have no idea what you're talking about. Are there mangoes? Am I growing apples? What are you talking about? So what does it mean to bear fruit in Scripture? It means to reflect and to live out what God has called us to. Uh, Jesus talks about the heart of men are either it produces bad fruit or it produces good fruit. Bad fruit is acts of wickedness. Out of that come adultery and idolatry and coveting. Bad fruit is living contrary to God's law. Good fruit is living in accordance to God's will and his law. That's what it means to bear good fruit. This shouldn't surprise us. And even in Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us an idea of what it means to as a believer, to put on the the righteousness of Christ and to carry out this good fruit. He says this in verse uh, 10 in Colossians chapter 3, "...and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another... Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. So, what does it mean to bear fruit? It's that. It's to image Christ, it's to walk out what God has revealed to you. And this happens, all of this happens because you're filled with the knowledge of who God is. And as you increase in that knowledge, you start to bear fruit. It grows deeper and deeper. The more you grow in his knowledge, the more fruit you should be bearing. They don't work opposite of each other. They need each other. They work together. They complement. D.A. Carson has a, a great quote that kind of brings this together. He says, To learn something of God's will and to use such knowledge to live a life worthy of the master and utterly pleasing to him, is to engage in the business of obedience. But as you get busy with obedience, you get to know God better. That in turn impels you to more obedience, which in turn opens up new vistas in the knowledge of God and His will. Of course, as your knowledge of God and His will improves, you are driven to greater obedience. Such obedience is one point of access to greater knowledge of God, and so on and on and on and on. In other words, the more I seek Him, the more fruit I start to bear. This isn't foreign to us. Think about perhaps if you're married, your marriage within the first year versus your marriage 10 years from now, or maybe 20 years or 30 years. Within your first year of marriage, all of the growing pains that were uh, encompassed in that, where you thought uh, Saturdays was meant for watching college football, and she thought Saturdays were meant to go out and explore. There was confusion there. But the more you got to know your wife and realize, hey, I can really honor her by going out and going and looking at crafts. I'm speaking personally right now. You can go and you can do that, and that's honoring her. And the more I get to know Lauren, the more fruit, Lord willing, that I'm bearing in our marriage as I'm producing things that she likes and appreciates as I get to know her. And you can know that in your marriage or maybe with a friend. The more you've gotten to know that special friend or that person you can connect with and share the struggles of life with, the more you start to be able to care for one another and can carry one another's burdens. It's a sweet thing to have a relationship where someone can provide something for you that meets your needs and that you didn't even have to ask because they know you. That's a result of fruit coming from knowledge. Or even in the workplace. Companies are often obsessed with the Myers-Briggs test and personalities and how to know and get people working together. Um, it really just happens quite naturally. The more everybody gets to know one another on a team, the more everybody knows their role and can fulfill the objective of the company. Or even in a sports team, our championship teams, the more the players know each other and where so and so sweet spot is on the court, the better that team will be successful because as their knowledge increases of one another, fruit comes from that. So, I would challenge you. Are you having fruit in your life? Are you growing in the knowledge of who God is? Do you seek him in his word? Like, can you think of times where you hunger to know him? As when David writes, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Is that something you can relate with? Or you depend on trying to know God just by feelings? or by experiences? Or are you hungry for him in his word which he's revealed himself? Do you truly believe what Jesus said when he said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Do you think of that often? Like the food that's sustaining me right now pales in comparison to what I need from God's word. Knowledge of him increasing in that leads to fruit bearing. And that's what Paul prays for. It's very practical. What I know will impact how I live. And we even see it in Romans chapter 12. Be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. When Levi prayed for us men to love our wives, why? As Christ loved the church. That knowledge leads me to want to love my wife in practical ways. But... Knowledge is practical in that it helps us walk out and bear fruit. But the second part of how knowledge is practical is look at what he says, that you would being strengthened with all power, in verse 11, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience. In other words, knowledge of God's will helps strengthen us when the pressures and the afflictions and the tribulations and the difficulties of life start to encompass us. It's the knowledge of God that will strengthen us. It says, and will strengthen you with all power. That all there is to the highest degree. You will have all of God's power strengthening you and no matter what circumstance or trial. And how do we know that? What's it say next? According to his glorious might, God will strengthen you to endure with patience. That cannot happen. The afflictions of this life when they come upon you and the physical struggles that every single one of us have in this room, when they come and they happen, it's being filled with the knowledge of who God is leads us to walk through those trials in a manner with endurance, suffering through it with a patience and a calmness that can only come from knowing who God is. That is a rich, rich, Thing to pray for your brothers and sisters who are facing trials of a job loss or a wayward child or difficulty at work or purity in the home. Pray that that member would be strengthened by the knowledge of who God is. But this knowledge of being practical for the unbeliever, I have to ask you, where do you find Your source of knowledge where do you find your strength to endure these afflictions in life where do you find the ability to walk in a manner that brings you satisfaction because i would contend that any worldview besides christianity when it's fleshed out when it's lived out to its conclusion when the thoughts enter into reality and you start walking out that worldview it never adds up it never provides what it promises for you And you can never, no matter how good you want to live, walk in a manner that pleases God unless you are filled with the knowledge of who He is and you live according to His will and not your own will. And for us who are believers, this knowledge of who He is and how practical it is leads us to thankfulness. Look at verses 12 through 14. Giving with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, we never should have been given back our inheritance. When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, they had rule and dominion over all of creation. It was theirs. The world was their inheritance. But instead of enjoying God and living for God and loving God, they rebelled and lost the perfect garden lost the relationship, the intimacy, the communion with God. They were filled with nakedness and shame and guilt. And the inheritance was lost. But praise be to God that Christ has come and that the Father has qualified us to get this inheritance back. Why? How? Well, we were all enslaved after that. After Adam and Eve made their choice to disobey God and do what was right in their own sight, they became slaves to Satan and his kingdom. They were imprisoned to sin. For many of us, when we hear the words in Titus, it makes complete sense when we think about our days of being in the kingdom of darkness. For we ourselves were once foolish. This is Paul writing about being in the kingdom of darkness before coming to Christ. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Do you remember your days of being in bondage to sin? Do you remember your days of being in the kingdom of darkness? Where your life consisted of coveting? Where you just wanted more and more and more and was never satisfied? Where you were always angry, always bitter, where you were impatient, where you lied? Over and over again, and you crushed people and you sinned against them, you were enslaved to that kingdom. But yet it says, Notice that He has delivered us from that dominion and He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is a passive verb. In other words, we do nothing. God is the one who acts in that moment. He takes us from that kingdom of darkness and He brings us into the kingdom of his son. A son that is perfect in righteousness. This son never fails. Jesus Christ is always a good king. He always does what is right. And living in his kingdom brings us joy evermore. For it is righteousness and it is truthfulness and it is love perfected. We are transferred from that darkness and that way of life and we're brought in to the kingdom of his beloved son. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What could be better? If you were to think about the things in your list that you're praying for, the physical circumstances you're praying for for others, of course they're important. But what could be better with them being filled with the knowledge of who they are in Christ and that they would be led to thankfulness, that even in the midst of their great present circumstances and their difficulties and suffering, that they would be filled with a reminder of what Christ has done for them. That as Levy prayed and as Tom preached last week, that they would be filled with a reminder that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. No height, nor depth, nor angel, nor principality, nor anything in all of creation can separate you. How sweet would that be when we pray that for one another in this church? We want to be filled with thankfulness. You see, when we look at this prayer that Paul offers up, he sees that ultimately what every believer in the church needs is a need to be filled with the knowledge of who God is. And that knowledge will start to bear itself out in all the practical ways. For some of us, there's a, perhaps a, a marriage that's on the, the rocks. And instead of praying that that husband would stop looking at pornography, which we should... We want to pray that he would be filled with the knowledge of who God is. And when he's filled with that knowledge, then all other things will stop. He won't just stop pornography, but he'll start loving his wife. Or when we pray for our children, we don't want to pray just down a list of practical things. Of course, they need those things. They need good friends. We don't want them to go wayward in college. But at the end of the day, we should be praying that they'll be filled with the knowledge of who God is. And when that happens, when that happens... They'll start to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So I ask you, church, those who trust in Christ Jesus, who can you be praying for this week, next month, over the next year, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and that that knowledge would lead them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? You see, Lazarus, he died again. Like of all the great prayer requests, Mary and Martha, their brother has died. And of all the prayer requests, I mean, bringing your brother back to life is a big one. And he's brought back to life, but he still dies. And think of all the present circumstances you have in your life or in others' lives. Even if all of them are answered, we still live in a fallen world and we still experience death and decay. And that's the end goal. That's what will happen. But what Lazarus needed was to trust in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And if he got that, if he got that, everything else would fall into place. So I encourage you, as a body, let us continue to pray for the present circumstances to change for those who are hurting. But let us always consistently go back to this prayer that each and every one of us would be filled with the knowledge of who God is. Not just to have it, but that we can walk in a manner fully pleasing to the Lord. And all of this, all of this, only accomplished because of the work of Christ Jesus. Let's take a moment. As you take this moment, reflect upon who it is you could be praying for. Asking God to give you a desire to know Him, to be filled with knowledge of Him. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a moment.